Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I'm your host, Nick Johannesson, and my guest today is Ella from Cornwall. Ella, would you like to uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Hello. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Ella. I am a fashion designer um, and I run a small business in Cornwall on the coast of England. Um, I'm a one-woman show, so I design, make and sell clothing um, with a sustainable and ethical approach to all of it. Um, I studied fashion design at Falmouth University, which is where I first kind of came and fell in love with Cornwall completely. Um, and there I learned how to pattern cut, design, um, kind of develop a concept and make clothing. Um, since I graduated, I have had a few years in the industry um, in London and Worcestershire, which is in the Midlands where I grew up, and in Cornwall, back in Cornwall. Um, and then the pandemic came along um, and I sort of realised that I'd been bumbling along on a career path where I was probably just following what was expected and what I thought I should be doing um, but I wasn't really happy doing that um, and you know the pandemic and furlough and time off sort of really hit home and I decided but well, I knew that I had missed being creative um, and making making my own decisions I kind of felt like self-employment was a lifestyle that I liked <laughs> um, and if I could I wanted to try my hardest now I just kind of thought there's no point wasting time might as well start my own business now doing what I love and see where it takes me um, so last weekend marched a, uh, marked a whole year since Ella Griffey Studio which is the name of um, my small brand so it's been a huge learning curve um, and yeah, it's, I don't talk about my work that often. So kind of talking to you and marking a year since I launched feels like a really nice opportunity to reflect on it. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you for, for agreeing to come on as my guest. <laughs> now, I want to talk a bit about how the work is in your company, but I was completely transfixed when you said that you were working in the industry there. COVID came along and you just, you must have pivoted almost immediately into getting out of that into your own thing. What sort of thing were you doing before you so, actually made the change? Yeah, so after graduating, I went to London first because that's just sort of what people who want to be in fashion in England do. Um, it's known as the sort of fashion capital. So I went there and did a few internships um, for high-end um, designers, which I learned so much, but it was just London life and that kind of fast fashion was not for me at all. Um, and at that time, I didn't really know that there were other alternatives, but I knew that I wanted to stay in fashion and if I could get back to Cornwall. Um so I got a job at Sea Salt, which is quite a well-known um, English brand, and their story started in Cornwall. So I was on their design team, on the accessories design team, where I learned so much, and it it was so necessary for what I do now as well, because I picked up so many tips on how retail works, but 
just that it just wasn't for me it was too big and there were too many too many links in the chain of fashion and you know as as hard as big brands try to be sustainable it's just not possible when you have a huge customer base and I really missed being creative um and you know just developing my own my own ideas and following through on those and just scaling it all back really so I'd been there for almost a year and then so I guess it was March 2020 and I was furloughed which was quite scary to start with (laughs) to go from you know nine to five every day working really hard and then you're furloughed um so I moved back home with my parents in Worcestershire and kind of I think I felt the pressure of the opportunity because I'd always probably told myself that, oh, I don't have enough time and the excuse of, you know, you just don't have enough time to start your own business or develop the things you want to develop. And suddenly I had all of that time and I just felt like I needed to make the most of it. So I just knuckled down and every day I was just designing or drawing or or making twirls, which are the mock-ups that you make for garments. And I just got so into it and absolutely loved it. And then when it came to, you know, three or four months later and the office called me up and said, you know, we want you back and time to get back to real life again, I I just, oh, I hated the idea of it. Even though I had loved my job before, I knew how I wanted to fill my days. Um, and I think I lasted about three weeks, to be honest, before... I was just like, I don't want to be doing this. And I I had saved up and I just kind of, it was probably really reckless. I should have made it more of, you know, a side hustle with a proper job until I could financially guarantee that I'd be okay for a while while I was figuring it, figuring it all out. But I just, I felt like it was something I needed to be doing as quickly as I could. Um so yeah, so I handed in my notice and then this time last year was my sort of my first week of self-employment. Uh, I'm st- completely stunned. It's <laughs> so impressive the way you just jumped into it. There's so many people, they'll sit around basically their whole life thinking, now if I could have just done that, it ends up sort of, oh, in my next life, I'll I'll do something yeah. different or... I mean, it's what's weird is it's so unlike me. I'm I'm such a planner. I'm I'm a warrior. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm not a reckless person. And but at the same time, I just really felt like it was something I needed to do. And it appears you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been a it's been a great year. Um, I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, I've I've learned so much and there's so much more to learn but just kind of contributing to this in Cornwall in Falmouth where I live there's such a great little community or probably quite a large community now um, of creatives and makers and so even though you're you know you're developing your own ideas and I, I work on my own you very much feel like part of something and I think that really helps because it doesn't feel like you've just taken a leap and you're completely on your own, you know. 
So there's a sort of supportive community where everyone's really quite friendly and supportive. Yeah, absolutely. So now you're a, you're basically a one-woman company, a solo operator, <laughs> and you're making all the things you sell. And at the same time, you're really good at social media. You're very conscious about what you're making. You're sustainable. And how is it possible for one person to do this so much better than larger companies? I think I think when you're one person, you have yourself to answer to. You know, you can't think, oh, somebody else will deal with that. Somebody else will look into whether that's okay. You know, the book stops with you and you're responsible for looking into everything. So in a way, it's easier because, you know, I'm probably a bit of a control freak and I like to know what's happening with absolutely everything. And when it's just me, I can do that. You know, I'm not having to depend on other people, um, which probably sounds, I don't know, I don't know if that sounds great or not, but I just, I'm fully in the loop because it's just me and I quite like it that way, I suppose. Um, and big brands, you know, the bigger you get, the more demand you have and the bigger your suppliers, and then you have to outsource to people and you have to trust people, basically, you know. Um, and your manufacturers and your teams and everything. And I think things can get lost along the way, even if you try your hardest to to have a, a wonderful supply chain. You just don't know. There's a lack of transparency that you, ca- you can't guarantee that everything is done as it should be, I suppose. So really you're saying that you trust no one, so you have to look at it yourself. <laughs> I mean, it sounds quite... <laughs> quite brutal when you put it like that um yes I suppose that's what I'm saying even it sounds really full-on but I think it's just you know what you're looking into and what you're making when it's just you and you're not having to rely on anyone else who through no fault of their own they might they might not know where their materials come from or who's made it and the conditions um how much being paid and all of that, the less you're kind of outsourcing, the the more confidence you can have in what you're making, I suppose. Because mm. you, you talk about being sustainable. What sort of things do you sort of put into the word? Because I often find that when people say sustainable, they have completely different perceptions of what they're talking about. Yeah, definitely. It's such a buzzword as well that I'm not sure it means much to a lot of people anymore. But um, in my approach, so I, well, to start with material, I often use dead stock material, which is um, material from larger scale factory orders. So from designers or big brands, they order a certain number of their garments and then maybe they cancel orders or um or they you know they change their mind or whatever and so factories are often left with excess material that will either just go to landfill after after a while um and there's a really good initiative that a lot of you know small makers are picking up on now where um companies are buying this dead stock and then selling it on to makers like me so it's kind of giving that second lease of life to fabric that that would otherwise you know end up in landfill um so I use a lot of dead stock and I also use organic materials um and natural materials to be honest I love linen um which is less 
intensive to make than cotton, even though I do use cotton. But my focus is on natural, organic and dead stock materials. Um, and then I, so my buttons are a part of the process that I'm really proud of and have involved a lot of um, Cornish innovators. So um, I, my buttons are 3D printed out of recycled fishing nets, Cornish fishing nets. Um, so there's a little company in Newlyn, which is about 40 minutes away on the coast, and a guy called Ian hauls in old fishing nets, ones that are at the end of their life, and they can just end up on the ocean floor or in landfill or be incinerated. Um, but he takes them in, and he... I'm not entirely sure how it's done. It's <laughs> it's very technical, but he makes it into a filament that can then be fed into 3D printers and you can make anything you want. Um, so I contacted him at the start of all this and kind of said, it's a long shot, but do you think you could make buttons from your filament? And he passed me on to a sustainable product designer who was actually at university with me, but we didn't know each other. And his final year project had been all about buttons from this 3D printed filament. Um, so he'd already kind of researched it and fine-tuned it. Um, and I was the first person to get in touch with him after his project and kind of say, you know, I, I would love these if we can do it. So we worked on, you know, we sampled a few different buttons, different sizes, different widths and everything and tested them, narrowed it down. And now we have lovely little, they're kind of a blue, blue or green. You get a different colour depending on which kind of net has been fed into the the final filament. Um, so I'm really, yeah, I'm proud of those because they, you know, they involve a lot of other makers. Yeah, they're from such a small kind of network of Cornwall. Um, and they can, you know, if you wanted them to be, they can be fed back into a, a circular process and they can be made into filament again and then take on a new form. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I guess that's the part of the sustainable approach. And then what's really important to me is that I make everything. Um, and, you know, I'm <laughs> there's no unethical labour going on. And I'm confident in my make after a lot of learning. And I'm still learning so much, but I can put my love and care into it. And I know, and I know that it will be well made. Um, so... I mean, you can go on and on and kind of dig deeper into things and how to make it more sustainable. But, there's, yeah, there's lots of little areas that um, I try and approach it with that kind of mindset. It strikes me that when you're talking about the buttons, you're not trying to do things in the cheapest way possible. <laughs> no. Um, no, <laughs> they are expensive and it adds on... Um, it does add on to the cost of a, the final garment. But I just, I think it's worth it. And also I, do, I try not to worry about what it, what it should cost or what people might expect it to cost. It costs what it costs. And that's, that's a simple equation on my end with the materials, um, which includes, you know, fabric and buttons and my labour and then a small profit and that's it. There's no, um, like in a big business, you kind of work out oh, what do your competitors sell for and um, how what's the most we could make from this. 
but I just don't think that's right and I charge what it's worth and just hope that that people can see why it is worth what it's worth. Because mm, you, you sell only direct, I think, not via retailers. Yeah, so I, I sell direct. Um, I've got a website and that allows me to make kind of custom alterations and actually talk to customers, which I love. Um, but I, there is one shop in Falmouth called Oaken and it's run by a lovely lady called Ellie who sells uh, kind of local handmade goods and I, I supply her with a limited amount of um of garments yes that's a lovely little connection it also gets me out there a bit more and into a shop which is a nice feeling but on the whole it's it's really important to me to stay selling directly um and keeping that connection and also means that I can keep costs as low as they can be I have suggested in the past that it makes good sense to buy direct from makers because as a consumer you'll get a, a better deal yeah. uh, but also the maker gets more of of the money yeah because you're not a sort of massive retail market markup to cover all sorts of other costs really that's the thing i think i mean it, it was something i looked into not too long ago and trying to figure out whether that was an avenue i wanted to go down because i I don't really. I mean, I love selling directly, um, but in terms of longevity and growing and raising more awareness of what I do, it's it's one of the kind of the first options spring to mind is to be selling through other retail stores. Um, but it just it doesn't really fit with my values, and I I would rather grow more on my own slower. Um, but maintain that kind of direct connection. I think that sounds very, very good. Do you have ambitions to grow the company sort of beyond yourself? I I, I have a little kind of fantasy. <laughs> Hopefully that will become a reality. Um, in a few years, I would love to have a small studio in Cornwall with a couple of makers with me, just so that, you know, if demand was higher, we could supply it. Um, and, you know, it would be employing a few local makers, which I would love to be able to do. And also there's such, you know, I have lovely links with the university here because I studied there and maybe it would be something that I could get graduates involved in or, or offer work experience or just, or just show that it is a possibility after university that you don't have to just kind of go to London and get into a big fashion company, that there's, there's different alternatives. So... Yeah, the dream is to have a lovely little studio and a couple of people who just work with me and very much the same, but able to produce more if we need to. Sounds lovely. <laughs> but after your time working in the big big fashion, fast fashion, uh, bigger companies uh, and their type of styles, w when you came to create your own style, how would you describe that? Oh, I think... So, I mean, we were talking about it before the podcast and a lot of my styles are based on longevity and I want it to be something that you wear again and again for years and years and that has to accommodate, you know, changing bodies, changing trends. Um, and for me, I'm really inspired by the clothes that my family wear. So... I grew up in the countryside and there were a lot of 
really tatty old barber jackets hanging on the hook um, that have been half eaten by my dad's pigs and, you know, that I know it's not nice, <laughs> um, that I would chuck on for a dog walk or something. It's just the clothes that stay on the hook for years and years that are quite worn and quite weathered, but that I absolutely love. And when I left home, they're the clothes that I took with me. You know, my dad thought rugby shirts, um, my mum's shorts, just things that aren't trend-led at all, but that are my go-to. And they also, they feel really effortless to wear because you almost don't have to think about it because somebody else has chosen it already. I, th- I think it's really interesting when you're wearing clothes that somebody's given to you or that you've borrowed. <laughs> um, and it's just much easier of the what shall I wear today because I trust that somebody's already sort of made that decision that that, that item is, is quality and works well. So I don't know, I've got a real fondness of those kind of familiar items that were around the house for a long time for years and years that we would just throw on without really thinking about it so they're the kind of items that I reference when I'm designing which is probably why I've started with shirts um because I yeah I just love wearing and seeing other people wearing big oversized shirts I just think it's such a beautiful classic style and one that I would wear to anything. It's so versatile, you know. I would wear I would wear shirts to absolutely anything and you could dress it up, you could dress it down. It's comfortable. And I think comfort, although it's not kind of cool to say, is is key because I think about comfort when I wake up and decide to get dressed and what I'm doing that day, I want to be comfortable. Um so yeah, so my styles are um largely oversized or relaxed fit to to allow for changing you know shape throughout your life um and I use natural materials that will wear well and can be repaired quite easily um and yeah I've forgotten what the question was but um <laughs> Yeah. Crystal was really what 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 was your how you describe your style? I was sort of summarizing it for myself here that basically it was stuff you'd stolen off your family. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You've nailed it. Um uh, I think it's just that familiar, practical, but hopefully elevated to a slightly more modern level, I suppose. Incidentally, I, I think it must be your dad's old barbers I keep buying because they always smell like they've been from a pig farm. Yeah, no, he hasn't quite let me pinch his barber yet, but I've got most of his old shirts with me. <laughs> right. Um, it's interesting what you say about body size because I find sizing is so tricky. I mean, let alone that we've got American sizing, European and uh, Asian sizing, which completely different, but also the way designers intend their clothes to fit. A lot of it is supposed to be, say, shirts. They're supposed to be sort of body hugging. And as you pointed out, I mean, our size does go up and down and changes over time, but it doesn't sort of seem like many really that in consideration I think it was it was really important to me because it's as a woman as well um it's completely natural for your body weight and shape to fluctuate and there's nothing worse than you know not being able to fit into something you could fit into last month even if you love it so I 
really designed with that in mind um and everything is a relaxed style um and I have you talk about different size guides everywhere and it's such a nightmare I mean I'm I'm sure I'm five one and curvy and it is it is really hard to find clothing that fits me well I usually have to cut cut the legs and rehem or you know <laughs> um it's, it's not easy and most people aren't a standard height and weight and so and that's completely normal and I think we just need to be so much more aware of that as designers and so many small scale makers and designers are and they allow for for custom alterations which it's not too much trouble at all just a small thing like lengthening a hem or shortening shortening a hem is is no extra effort you know and it makes such a big difference to somebody who's going to wear that day in day out um so I on my website I have the exact measurements of each style and size so if you think that's your size you can get out an old shirt and measure it up and see how it will compare and if you want changes you can let me know um I just I think it's really important because that kind of made to measure tailoring is seen as luxury you sort of think of Savile Row and you know uh five hour fittings and being measured when it, it doesn't have to be like that you know if we can offer it as makers and it makes such a difference and it, it's still a luxury I suppose because my garments are expensive but it's it's accessible and if, there just should be more of it you know we should be thinking of clothing in a way that's going to last and that is made for us to fit our bodies but it does strike me that people are often reluctant to pay more money for a single shirt say than buying five ones that aren't very good but are very cheap yeah how do you think we can make people more sort of clear on the advantage of actually buying something that is good and that you like and will wear instead of just accumulating it's, it's such a hard question because i mean as a teenager i was so out of the loop with all of this and i i would save up my you know i had a saturday job and i would save up my money and go to h&m at the weekend you know and that that was the way it was for everyone and I think now there's so much more discussion of how unhealthy that is for the planet and just for everything and how disruptive and destructive um, fast fashion is. So I think the way to encourage people to shop slower and smarter is by showing them the root of the problem, you know, and the damage that fast fashion is doing and you know shops having a new collection in every month and every week it's just so unsustainable and I think I think a lot of people are recognizing that and it it is I know that it is hard to part money with a lot of money um on one item instead of five but you really are getting your money's worth because that item will last you for so much longer and you can be confident that it's been made well, that you haven't directly contributed to, you know, unethical labour and poor living conditions and <laughs> awfully made materials from fibres and synthetic materials that are going to damage the planet. It's just, it's, it's a commitment, I suppose, to 
thinking that even if you can make a small change, it's a good change. And I don't know. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know how that change comes about. But I think all, all we can do as makers is kind of share how we work and explain why why it's a good thing that we're doing what we do you know show the materials show how it's made why it takes you know a lot of time and then as a result why it might cost more than your average top shop shirt um and hopefully people will understand that and see that and think okay then this this is a good deal for what it is you know this has been handmade with love and care and so much time and inspiration and thought has gone into it um that it's a much better choice for the planet and for you and for everyone um, to buy that than to than to contribute to fast fashion. Do you think for many people the problem may lie in that it's not fashion, that really they're sort of yeah. so caught up on the cycle here that, oh, last week I had to have flares, this week <laughs> skinny, low-cut jeans, whatever, yeah. and they, they sort of can't break that uh, spell I know I think it's so liberating when you do break that spell and I also think there are there are trends that I've seen within this kind of sustainable fashion world of makers there are a lot of you know chore jackets or quilted jackets or linen trousers there are kind of smaller trends but ones that are much more long lasting I suppose and I think that's a good thing because you do, everyone, I suppose, still wants to fit in and that's what trends and fashion do, you know. They enable you to fit in if you want to. You buy this and you feel like you're part of something. And with sustainable fashion, there's still an element of that, but it's much less, I don't know, it's it's just much more wearable and much more versatile, I suppose because they're based on styles that have stood the test of time and that you will want to wear again and again and again. I think it's right what you're saying there about sustainable fashion having become almost its own fashion. Um, I do see a lot of very sort of earthy linens and short (laughs) coats. And and I sort of find myself thinking, now, does it all have to be so virtuous and sort of almost religious in its way uh, where's the happy stuff I know I think I I absolutely love colour and my collection at the university was so colourful and experimental and not wearable in the slightest um, so it's kind of funny that I've ended up doing what I'm doing now but I think I do try and inject um, a bit of fun into it where I can you know I've I've done some gingham materials and with I'm working on a few styles that I'm hoping to bring some colour into. But it, it is all earthy, but I think that's because that's easy to wear and that makes it a smart decision at the end of the day because that means you will be wearing it more um, and you get, you know, more wear for your money. Yeah. I suppose a lot of the fabrics used also sort of come mainly in those type of colours as well. That's true. Yeah, they do. And you don't want to mess around with it too much, too much with the fabric, when often the natural colour is absolutely lovely. Mm. Mm. Um, Something I have been wondering about lately is there's been a lot of talk about buying less and buying better. 
I suppose what they're really saying is buying more expensive. Now, as I see it, you're not guaranteed anything at all different just because you're paying more money. You could just be paying more markup or whatever. Yeah. But what concerns me is um, if we buy less and are supposed to wear things more and only buy things we love. I mean, there's so many. I feel like I'm sort of just retelling memes and things <laughs> off Instagram here. Totally. <laughs> How on earth do you as a maker go about making something that people, someone will love and cherish and wear to pieces? Now, there's no pressure here because no one has been able to answer this question to I mean, my satisfaction before. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer it, but I know that in the back of my head, the way I'm answering it is going against what I've been told to learn. So when I was at university and they're teaching you how to design and develop concepts and who your customer is, they, the key thing was you're not designing for yourself, right? You're, you're not thinking about what you like and what you wear. You're thinking about your customer and what they want and who they are and their lifestyle and how they're going to, how you're going to make them buy what you sell, basically. So that's kind of what I was taught. But in reality, the only way I can completely believe in what I'm making and designing it if I completely love it. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I, I design and make styles that I would wear and that I know are versatile and that I'll wear in 10 years' time. And it's having that kind of love for it that makes me confident in not in selling it because it's not just about selling it, but in, in sharing about my process and you know, and encouraging people to look into what I do, it's much easier when I completely love and believe in the product. That's an interesting uh, interesting way of putting it. And it has me thinking that does some designer at Primark who's putting together an acrylic sweater that's to be released in three weeks have any of the same sort of mindset? I don't think they can. I mean... Big businesses go on what's done well before and then they make really small changes to that style and there's there's I mean, I can't I can't just say a wide sweeping statement like there's no love there, but surely it's just got to become all about the money when you're you're somebody like Primark. Um and there's it's just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm just also thinking about how you hear about these big places and uh, they have such efficient cost control. So they know the price of a centimeter of thread and uh, every button and, and how they can force the cost down. Yeah. And that doesn't sort of strike me as love either. I mean, that's not how you raise your children. You're not sort of cost controlling the food you give them. So I, I'm, I've been talking to makers who set out to make the absolute best they can do and then charge a price accordingly with a small markup. Yeah. And that's again, strikes me as a more sort of heartfelt way of doing business. Exactly. I mean, I think you just have to charge what it's worth and hope that other people will too. And that, and that customers understand the value in your work. I mean, I've had a few kind of, 
glad you come to me. I'm not sure why, because I'm so new to all of this myself. But they come to me and they kind of say, how do you cost it? How do you figure it all out? And I just say, cost exactly what it's worth and make sure you're paying yourself for your time and put a small profit on it, however, you know, whatever you think that's fair. And then it, it is what it is, you know. That's how much it's worth and that's your costing equation done. Like, it doesn't have to be... It's very simple. <laughs> Mine, mine's a very simple equation that I just apply to every style I make. And there's no, oh, I think I could probably get away with more because that that's just not what it's about, you know. That's not fair on the customer and it's really sneaky and it's just, it's worth what it's worth. It is interesting looking at prices like yours, say, and, and realising that this is what the fabrics and the buttons and your time and so forth have cost. And then you see places selling sort of vaguely similar products mm. at, say, a tenth or almost a twentieth. And then you're sort of thinking, now, how on earth is that possible? They've had shipping, they've got VAT, all sorts of stuff. And you just realise that really there's nothing at all gone into the actual shirt. No, I mean, it's, if you wonder how it's possible, then it's not possible. You know, somebody's taken a cut somewhere and that could be quite far down the line of the garment makers, you know, in awful conditions. And I just, just you can't justify that. And I think it, I'm so aware of that now when I shop that, that further down the chain, somebody is taking the hit, you know? For something to be as cheap as that is, someone somewhere, a real person most likely, is taking a big hit um, just so you can have something a bit cheaper. Hmm. I was talking to another guest uh, uh, the other day who hasn't been released on the pod yet, and he was talking about how... uh, how these big brands, when they're buying in, they're also completely squeezing their suppliers to the max to yeah. increase their profits. I mean, it's scary, and I understand why it's done, because big businesses, they need to make money and they need to stay afloat to continue doing what they're doing. But it just doesn't seem like there's anything fair or kind of nice about it you know these are people who who put their hard work and love into making beautiful materials they shouldn't be paid the bare minimum for what they do you know they should be appreciated so I just it's such a a damaging culture when it's you know trying to to cut every cost to the bare bare minimum I don't I don't think it does any good to anyone at all do you get people complaining to you on social media or by email about your prices? No, I mean, touch wood, I'm really lucky. I haven't had anything like that yet. Um, because I think, I'm not sure why that is, I suppose. Um, no one's complained. Um, I think they are quite, aff- it's really hard to say they're affordable because affordable means something different to everyone. Um, but my price up. range is from sort of 90 to £145. Um, so, it's, so it's not, you know, it's not designer prices, um, but it's not high street, well, it's not cheap high street prices. Um, but I'm lucky in that no one's compla- <laughs> complained yet. Um, and hopefully that's because I'm, sh- I'm showing why it's, it's, 
it costs what it does. Um, I try and be really mm-hmm. clear when I'm writing about each garment on my website, you know, so it says how much it is, but then it will also say this was handmade in the UK, it's an organic material, it has sustainable buttons, you know, it, the packaging is locally made and recyclable. I'll, I'll try and really break it down. So hopefully as a customer, you can kind of add up in your head why it's worth what it is. Mm. I suppose it could also be that it's quite clear from your social media and so forth that you're actually a very nice person. <laughs> Uh, I know the brands that do the brands that do um, do get complaints like that. They're often menswear brands, and the men who are complaining are complaining because they can they can buy jeans in their supermarket for a tenner. So why would they pay more? And they find it quite offensive. I think that they are expected to pay more. But um, it is a it's a strange world we're living in, where really the most attractive products are those that are so cheap that you they don't cost you anything. I know. I, I do think that's changing, though. Maybe that's just me being naive and hopeful. Um, but there's been a, f- a few, a lot of kind of talks and lectures on how small businesses and makers and designers are kind of becoming the new luxury over um, high fashion brands. And I mean, you know, I follow so many makers who sell out instantly and they're so in demand and you know they have they have a stock update and it sells out within five minutes and it's just I think there's a recognition that small makers and the as a customer being able to have a one-off unique beautifully made item whether that's you know a mug or a garment or some art or anything or jewelry is just so much more special um than buying it from a big brand that's seen as luxury i just i think luxury is sort of is really flipping on its head hopefully um and that's for the best really for lots of kind of small makers like me hopefully that will continue i find myself sort of we have a norwegian expression meeting yourself in the door um what you were just saying now because yes i am looking for the the, those items that i might cherish and keep for a long long time then i also see the danger of these companies where they sort of release unique items and they sell out immediately that really they have become so fashionable in their own sense that people aren't buying say a mug because they needed a mug it's just because that virtuous mug will look good on the shelf next to the other 35 ones they have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just um, um, Harry and Paul, the British comedy duo, have this, um, this sketch series, I Saw You Coming. Okay. Which, which where there's this guy who has a shop and these daft, uh, obviously wealthy women come in and buy crummy crap off him. And he's always <laughs> sort of putting them down and being very rude to them. But there, there is a sense of that as well, because when you're making these things that are sustainable and virtuous and all the tick all the boxes and so forth yeah. you see some brands who are charging insane money for things and you can sort of tell that their market segment they're looking at is people with a lot of money and maybe a little less common sense i think and i think that's, yeah. that's a bit sad definitely and i think there's a danger to get carried away. I mean, I'm not there yet at all. I'm I'm still quite small and um, doing well. But 
but still learning lots. Um, and there, there are makers who are doing so well and I've seen them kind of, you know, they sell out and there's so much hype around their products, which is wonderful. But then I think it must you must feel so much pressure to then just produce to keep up with demand. And then it must be hard to kind of be truly creative because you're constantly aware of sort of further down the line, um, which I think is something a lot of small makers are talking about. How do you stay truly kind of authentic and creative when when you're thinking about, oh, will this sell out? Is this like other things that have sold out? Will this kind of generate hype? Which I, I think affects your product because you're not thinking about it as purely as you were initially. I already kind of missed those first few months that I had when I was furloughed. And I, you know, I didn't have social media. I didn't have customers or orders to make. I could just sit down and really draw and design and make and tweak and like go back to it and rework things over and over until it was perfect. And I wasn't thinking about the final photographs or, or what it would look like online. It was just those methods in that moment. And it, it's so liberating being able to work like that but it doesn't last for long because the reality is to continue to continue doing this I have to you know I have to sell and make money um and then you're thinking then you are thinking differently because you have customers and you have to think about what they might like and it's hard it's I'm learning how to navigate the two of them and probably not doing it that well but it's just it's, it's interesting to think about as a small maker and I'm sure everyone is having to navigate it. Could there be some mileage in actually enjoying being a small maker, not having sort of huge ambitions to grow much? But I'm sort of thinking back to old days, you'd have the sort of village smithy or you'd have the village <laughs> shirt maker. Yeah. And your, your customer base was basically the 250 people in your village. And uh, as long as they all had shirts, then all was well. But you you weren't sort of bustling in on the next village or whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely. I think um, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I knew that when I started, I struggled a little bit with, with lovely people who were just interested in what I did, but they'd kind of say to me, oh, what's next? Uh, what's new? Like, what's coming out next? Can't wait to see it, which is really lovely. But it's also... I think you were asking earlier how how a small maker does everything. You know, they design and make and they market and all of that. And it's it's slow. You can't do all of that quickly. And everything takes time. And there's only so much, you know, so many hours in the day. Um, so I, I think I've got over that now. But there's at the start there was kind of a pressure to, oh God, what is new? What what am I going to do next? Which is just not it's not how I want to work. I don't want to produce newness just just for the sake of it, like I want to actually have a design in my head that I'm excited about and that I believe is a, is a worthwhile, versatile piece. And that takes time and kind of my favourite thing is mulling it over in your mind over, you know, a few months or whatever and things change so much in that time than if I was to churn it out in a week, which is not even possible. But I think that there is that pressure on creating, on keeping on creating 
and kind of churning it out and that's not natural um so staying small and being okay with that like you say I think is a really good way to think about it and a way that I'm kind of coming around to and I would love that I would love to just keep on doing what I do how I do it and make make a life of it one way I see some people get around this um, innovation, releasing new things cycle a lot is that personally, if I have a shirt that fits, that's excellent. Can I have <laughs> another in a different fabric? But the design is fine. And I see brands that do sort of the same model trouser year in, year out. They just release new fabrics. Yeah. And I mean, with a shirt sort of between us, how many different designs are there? Once you've made one that is sort of your design, yeah, does it need to be changed? All I think so. You're right about um, keeping a style and changing fabrics, and that is something I do. So I've got lovely lightweight organic linens that kind of work well in summer, but you could layer up in winter. And then I might have the same style in a heavier weight organic cotton twill, um, which can be worn as more of an outer layer. And they do feel like very different styles when they're made out of different materials. Um, so I, I do like doing that, but I'm aware that sort of limits <laughs> limits my creativity and just changing the fabric every now and then. Um, but I, I know I started with shirts, but I don't want to just limit myself to that. Um, ever since I started, I've wanted to make a waxed cotton smock style, um, but I'm I'm struggling on finding the right kind of lining and the the pattern for that. But I'll get there, and that that's something I have in my head. So it's just there are there there's always something to do. It's just that those things take quite a long time, and it's just you. Mm, I can see that smocks are very much in the in the in fashion right now. I see as well. <laughs> I think you're bang on trend there. Oh, I think I might have. Just losing you a little bit. Sorry, I think I just lost you for 30 you seconds. You can't hear me. Can you hear me now? You're back now. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was just saying that smocks are very trendy now, so you're sort of uh, totally fashionable there if you're thinking about doing one. Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen a lot of smocks, but in my eyes it's sort of an update on the old the old barbers that I was talking about earlier, and I, I love that kind of olivey waxed cotton um and it's it's the fabric I worked with at university um and I would really love to work with again so I'm I'm hoping to enjoy working on that I would suggest buying or sourcing a lot of old barbers and then yeah. cutting them up yeah and then because that would be sort of totally sustainable and look incredibly cool yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll that uh, give that a go <laughs> all the different shades and so forth yeah i mean it is beautiful the way that that waxed cotton wears over time um kind of dries out i know you reoil them but it's just it's a, a fabric that i've grown up with and the smell of it as well maybe it's just because my dad's barbers are kept where the dogs sleep at night so <laughs> it smells quite doggy but to me that smells like home and yeah i love it yeah, we, I, we, I could do a full podcast on the smell of old wax jackets. <laughs> <laughs> I have had a couple that you couldn't even keep indoors. They were so bad. They were really? right. <gasps> totally awful. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Now, um, making to order. Yes. Most of what you make is made to order, I believe. Yeah, pretty much all of it. Um, I only offer ready-made samples if I've made a sample for a photo shoot um, or for a meeting. You know, they're, they're samples that had to be made, in which case I will sell them on. But apart from that, everything is made to order and that allows for the custom alterations that we were talking about earlier. So they could be lengthened or shortened. Or I've had a few people come to me lately because they wanted a puff sleeve, which is quite trendy at the moment, um, which is, you know, fine for me to do. And I felt like it, it still it still worked with the style, so I was happy to do that. But it, it just allows for a lot of flexibility between me and the customer, you know. It lets them get creative and really think about what they're buying and having some actual input on it. Now, there's two things I want to ask you there. Uh, one is, do you find that customers have an awareness of their sizes? Because if they don't, they have to start measuring and that can be a sort of tricky process. I think I think possibly a lot of people still feel like it's a chore to uh, get up, get the tape measure, you know, get something out of their wardrobe and see how it will compare. But I just think it, I, I do it all the time. I just think it's something we have to get used to doing. And it's it's good to be thinking a little bit more about what you're about to buy, you know, making sure it will fit. Or if not, what can I do as a maker to, to make it fit you better? I think... It's just that consideration of a little bit more time and effort and just measuring up so you know you know what you should purchase. Mm. Of course, many would say, oh, but I'll just go on Zalando and order five <laughs> different sizes and see which one fits me. I know, I know. It's such a bad habit to do that and... Um, there's so much wastage there when you could just look at... I mean, a lot of small makers have a size guide, and if not, you can just contact them. You can email them and say, this is who, you know, I'm this height, I'm, I'm this shape. What do you recommend? I get that all the time. And for me, because I'm making these garments, I know exactly what they should, what size they should be buying. And that takes, you know, that's easy. They don't have to get a tape measure out to do that. So I think... Um, that's the beauty of, of being the maker that has the direct connections with the customers because you can just talk to them and make sure they'll be happy with what you're going to make for them. The second question I wanted to ask was, do you think this personal involvement, you mentioned you had people coming by, uh, you had people emailing and getting in touch, uh, this question of sizing, probably fabrics and all this. Do you think this gives them a greater investment in it when they finally get the shirt it's more theirs I would really hope so um I mean I have people send photos once they've got the shirt of them in the shirt which I really really love <laughs> um and it really feels like it's all come full circle when I get that photo um I think Definitely. I mean, the items that I buy from small makers, I feel like I have such a connection to because you you know who it was and you know it was their hands that, you know, put time and love and skill into producing something. 
Um, and I just think that's so special. And you have absolutely none of that when you shop on the high street. Um, so I, I hope they feel involved and I hope that I encourage them to get involved. Um, I don't know if I talk enough about that on my, on my social media that, you know, I can do custom and we can we can really talk about what they want. Um, but it, it's definitely an option. And, um, yeah, no, I, I love that they feel involved. And, I, get, I mean, I've seen a few photos this summer of people wearing their shirts out to festivals, which I absolutely love, and seeing how they kind of outfit them. And it, it's nice because quite a few of the people who buy from me come back and buy again, which gives me a real, like, I think I probably, I mean, that's a surefire way of them believing in your work if they want to buy again. And that's like the biggest um, compliment I could get, I think, because it really means they were happy. They're not just saying they were happy, you know, they really were. Well, the proof is in the pudding there if they're coming back and buying another and again and again. I, I find myself going down this sort of rabbit hole of, um, okay, so this person has made this and uh, walking it back to this person has woven it. And yeah. you sort of try to, <laughs> you try to sort of document the entire chain. And I know one thing, um, one effect of this is it makes me incredibly boring in social company because no one will ever dare com make any comment about what I'm wearing in case it sets me <laughs> off on some sort of uh, long-winded story about uh, the Hebrides and no, tiny workshops so somewhere. And <laughs> I mean, I love complimenting somebody on what they're wearing. And then they're, they're also they're usually so proud to tell you oh, my God, it was made by, you know, so-and-so. Um, oh, I think I might have lost. Oh, no, you're back. Did you lose me there at all? Yep. No, no, you were there all the time. I can hear you. Okay, yeah. great. Um, yeah, no, I was just, I think it's really lovely when you when you compliment somebody on what they're wearing and they're really proud to tell you who it was made by and what it's made from and... It's just lovely seeing how people really appreciate that. I think it is. I do enjoy it when people do ask me about stuff, but mainly because it gives me such an opportunity to bend their ear. Yeah, and you've got such good wardrobe <laughs> as well. You must yep. you must have a story about every garment that you wear. <laughs> I have very few items that I don't have some sort of story about. And really the, the things that I have been getting lately have more of a story than before yeah and uh, it is a it is a bit of a rabbit hole and uh, hence i could sort of recognize how the whole sustainable fashion thing might also be another thing like when you have people asking you what's next is that because they don't sort of quite like what you're doing now or is it because they've already got what you've got done now <laughs> and they want more <laughs> i know it's, it's such um it's a lovely question, but it's also one that makes me kind of roll my eyes a little bit and think, oh, God, what is next? Um, but I've just got to hope that that means that they like what I'm doing, hopefully. I suppose it means that once or twice a year you have to sort of take a week out and sort of think of your new season. Yeah. But for just a solo maker, that must be so much time. I mean, just photographing and, oh, God. I know. It's, I think... Because I'm, I mean, I'm a typical burger, so I, I, li I like a list and I'm very organised. And 
I thought that that wouldn't be a problem with, you know, with self-employment because I could stay on top of things. But the reality is when there's a lot to, when there's a lot you want to do, time just goes so quickly. And I still haven't quite, I would, I would love to kind of look at the future year and book in design time, you know, order time and have a really regimented calendar. But then that's what fast fashion brands or just bigger brands do. I mean, they have a product calendar and they have to follow that to the day. And actually, I didn't enjoy that aspect of it when I was in industry because there's no room for flexibility and and things change and maybe you're a particularly productive time, you know, in your life or maybe you need to take things slower. And I think it's just, it's about listening to what you've, feel like you want to work on but yes in terms of development time it's something I need to it's it's hard to say next week I'm just going to work on new patterns and new styles when in the back of your mind you know people are waiting for their shirt to be made I'm very much someone that that likes to tick off a to-do list so if there are things I know need to be done I find it quite hard to delay that um, in favor of just you know a lovely week making and creating but that's something that really worthwhile in the long run because it means I can continue um doing what I do so I need to get better at putting that time in planning that time in I suppose it sort of loops back to the idea of supplying the village with shirts that at some point they will like something new but until that time it's not that every Tuesday they want a new design on their shirts because their old one is still fine yeah Uh, whereas fast fashion is I mean the product is really getting you to buy something new every week regardless of what it is yeah no that's really true and also I'm, I'm still small so every week um you know n- new people are finding me I suppose and to them everything I've made is, is a new style because they've not seen it before so I yeah so I think I, I don't need to worry about it too much but also for me the excitement lies when I'm creating something new and you know it's seeing it all with fresh eyes for the first time and I love that part of it all so I I do get excited about being able to create new styles or just work on them and you know draw on mood board and find fabrics it's such a lovely part of it all at the start so um yeah I need to spend more time finding time (laughs) for that now sort of in closing now well uh, I I was going to ask what's next but I won't (laughs) Is there anything oh, you'd no. like to mention in closing? Um, sorry, say that again. Is there anything you'd like to mention oh, in closing? Um, I don't think so. Just maybe a, an encouragement to customers out there to support your local makers and designers. You know, they they put in so much time and effort and money into creating something really unique. And I think... So many people don't even realise that or that there's this whole world of small makers out there. And I think once you find one, you do find a lot more. There's definitely communities um, and it's such a lovely community to be a part of. And I don't know, I'm feeling very lucky and grateful that I'm I'm in it. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about it all as well. I think maybe I was a chatterbox, even though I didn't expect to be. <laughs> That's good. You've been a wonderful guest and uh, thank you for appearing. Thanks a lot, Ella, and uh, all the best for the future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. 
And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. This week's guest was Ella Griffey. That's Griffey with a double E at the end. If you'd like to uh, look at her shirts and other work, you can find her on the web as ellagriffey.co.uk and also Ella Griffey on Instagram. I am Nick Johannesson, your host. You can find my work at welldressdad.com. Also, all previous episodes of Gomology Podcast, well, available on all podcast apps and platforms, really. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's uh, welldressedad there. You can also follow the podcast and get tips about new episodes, etc., as Gomology Podcast on Instagram. If you'd like to support the podcast, get in touch. If you have a suggestion about a guest, get in touch as well. Uh, you can get in touch with me at welldressedad at gmail.com new podcast episode next week something to look forward to so until then bye bye <laughs>